Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. So, Reza, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Always good, man. Always good. Just before the podcast, you were talking about some interesting projects that you have going on about a video series. Uh, what I'm working on at the moment, which is something that isn't part of Aquila, which is my main focus, the company I'm uh, working on, is uh, a video series on how to make a jacket. Because obviously, if you search for videos on how to make a jacket or a bespoke jacket, let's say, there isn't much content out there that really discusses the techniques and the sequences of the techniques and some general information about uh, the principles of those techniques. So uh, since I was getting uh, more and more people asking me about how to improve things or they would do something and they would send me a photo and be like, hey, can you help me with this? I thought this is not going to work for me. Uh, what I should do is probably just make one video or one series and then that would probably answer all these questions that people are sending me in relation to a jacket and so that's what i've been working on the last few uh, weeks i would say that's really cool so and you said that's kind of something that you're doing apart from aquila that's something more of i don't know if you want to say you're, you're with your personal brand kind of like yourself correct? yes i think you know at some point you have to kind of like focus on one thing and for me that is aquila at the moment because whatever i'm going to be doing in the future is probably going to be within aquila but you know i thought it's probably important to have something out there because there just generally isn't a lot about tailoring and if there is something well it's either something you have to pay for or it's just like you know you've seen the videos on instagram when people just you know work on something and they you know record that and then you look at it and you're like okay great but if i was like a beginner let's say and i wanted to learn something just watching a video of someone working may give me an idea of what is happening but you can't ask questions and you can't really hear an explanation on why something is done the way it's done so with the videos i, I thought you know i could do that but it isn't part of akila so maybe people see the videos and they're like oh so this is what akila was about but it isn't I mean, of course, within Aquila, we have uh, a very good, uh, let's say, education system for tailoring that we are working on. But Aquila is not an online teaching uh, thing. That's why I'm keeping it apart from Aquila. That's the idea. So this is something that you're kind of doing just because you think it, it needs to be done. How should I say this? So what I've noticed is that if you look at other industries, you see that they make a lot of progress and they make a lot of progress very quickly. So for example, if you compare the aviation industry with today and like 50 years ago, the improvements have been so immense that you can't even believe that one day it started where it started. But when you compare, let's say, the tailoring industry in that sense, or any other artistic industry, you'll notice that what we have been doing 50 years ago or 60 years ago hasn't really much changed in the traditional bespoke tailoring. I mean, ready-to-wear definitely has changed. But although I don't see ready-to-wear that much apart from bespoke, apart from the fact that it's mass-produced, but the techniques are more or less the same. It's just they are done more efficiently. But there isn't much progress being made in the bespoke tailoring industry. And I think one of the reasons is that it's very difficult to get your hands on the basics you know today these days if you want to let's say become an engineer of what of whatever or become 
even an artist like a painter or anything of the kind, you go to an academy, you learn the basics very quickly, and then all you need to do is you have to practice and you know get your degree or get your experience and you move on. But within tailoring, I mean, yes, there are academies, yes, there are tailoring courses, but if you compare the general interest within tailoring, not all of those people have access to those courses. And so what happens is like only a few, like maybe people in London have access to all the courses and some people in Italy have uh, access to some of the courses or maybe somewhere in America. But generally, not every country has a tailoring course. And if they have, it's not always like really uh, something you want to you know, be part of. So I thought by having at least some of the basics just out there, then when people go to an academy, imagine I'm not the only person doing this. If more people would do this, then when you go to an academy, you don't need to start from, okay, this is how you hold the needle and the thimble. But you can immediately start from, okay, this is now how you expand your knowledge into the next stage. And I think that as long, and I say this in the int introduction of the video as well, for as long as we present or project the basics of tailoring as magic or like secret knowledge, then we're only shrinking the chances to really see the full potential of our industry. And that's been one of the motivations for me to throw something like this online to be like, you know, don't stick to those very basic things when you are an academy or a tailoring course. Focus on anything that you can do to help people to expand beyond their boundaries, not just like this is how you sew. Because funny enough, some and, and I'm not saying this to be, uh, you know, to be whiny about it, but funny enough, I sometimes look at some of the tailoring courses or some of the people who make a living through teaching and I watch them how they use the needle and the thimble and it's just not correct. And I'm like, well, these people are teaching. And the first basic thing is how you hold the needle and the, and the thimble. And if that's not going right, well, hold on, how is this, how is the rest of this going to go right, you know? So, so you're not saying not to have standards because I think what some people from maybe the traditional side, if they were listening to what you were saying, they might say, well, okay, yeah, we need, we, maybe we need to improve, but you also can't start putting on sleeves and putting on a collar when, when you don't even know how to hold a thimble and you don't even know the basic construction of something like a pair of trousers or, or a shirt or something like that. So I just want to be really clear about what you're saying, which is, you can tell me if this is right or wrong. We do need to have standards, but we need to be specific about those standards so that students can achieve them. And then once they achieve them, we need attentive teachers who can bring those students forward as quickly as possible. That's exactly Is right. That... I mean, I'm not here okay. to say, you know, I'm not saying that we should have a deconstruct approach to tailoring. Not at all. There are certain standards that people have. I mean, people have been working really hard throughout the years when tailors have been like crying out on the floors trying to, you know, build this craft. And so I'm not going to sit here and say, all oh, these old tailors, they don't know anything. No, there are absolutely standards. Everything has a standard, you know? And if you want to start learning a craft, you can't just say, oh, everybody has a, a, has a way of doing so. I'm just going to do my own thing. No, you know, there, there are guidelines that we have to follow and there are things that we have to build up on. But at the same time, I don't think that all the focus should go to just show you the basics of the basics or or even apprenticeships, man. Like people go through five years of apprenticeships and then when they come out of that apprenticeship, all they know is how to just make a jacket. But they can't really tell you how to make a jacket in a much more efficient way or a much more uh, creative way, if, if that makes sense. What you're saying makes sense and it's logical. I think what we're what you're talking about is something easy for me to understand and for other younger tailors and for a lot of people that I talk with. I think it's something easy for them to understand. But like you said, we still also need that knowledge and the experience of older people in the industry. What do you think is the path to bridge the gap between a younger generation that wants to learn and wants to learn quickly and wants to be creative and an older generation that is 
that can be set in their ways and want to continue on doing the same things that they've been doing because those things work. How do you think we bridge that gap? Well, there is a saying that you were probably familiar with, which says, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And every time I hear that saying, I just get goosebumps because there is a truth to that. It's a reasonable statement, but at the same time, it has a dark side to it. And that dark side presents itself when it is used as an excuse not to include forward thinking and design in our work process. So this question that you asked is, I think, extremely complicated. And we can probably talk about that for a bit longer if you want. So the way I'm looking at this question that you're asking is there are a couple of things that are kind of like universal. So usually, you know, you have uh, you have a generation that is just like fed up with the way things are. And this generation tries to make things happen and it meets resistance, but it actually eventually pushes through and creates something new. Now, when they create something new, they make a lot of progress and improvements. And over time, let's say maybe, uh, you know, one or two generations uh, ahead, uh, what happens is that they kind of get used to what they have been doing now and the mistakes that they found in their time and have been fixing. And so because they actually have been fixing some mistakes, they think they have been fixing all the mistakes. When you get to that level, what you're basically doing is you're you're more involved with maintenance of a correction that you've made with your peers than actually continuously designing and improving that what you have introduced. And so when that happens and you go, you know, a few generations further, then you kind of like get another generation which inherits all those things that the previous generations like worked for, but you're kind of like it's not you, you know, you're detached from it. I totally agree with what you're saying. It's kind of a cyclical cycle yeah. that happens in every industry that happens across nature, which is that new young people come in and they think they're going to change things. And then there's old establishment people or things or ideas that say, no, you need to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And then we have this kind of a uh, sort of war. And then at the end, once that time passes, it's kind of just restarts the cycle. I remember when I was just uh, looking at tailoring and, and learning about tailors, I was, you know, the first place that I went was Savile Row. I was looking for tailors online, Googling things, Savile Row. And I remember, I think it was Edward Sexton talking about him and Tommy Nutter being the new boys on the block. And I thought that was so interesting because those two people, well, I guess not Tommy Nutter anymore, but uh, Edward Sexton has become the old boy on the block and not just in age. But in, in how he runs things. And then and I have to say, I've never spoken with Edward Sexton, and I would love to do so. And I hope that that is not his mentality. But I think that's what he's become. What do you, I mean, what do you think about that? So that, that's just another example of showing the cycle of young rising, fighting with old, taking over, and then fighting with young. Well, the thing is, I don't, I'm not sure whether that we could close that gap completely. <laughs> but what I do know is that it's, it's probably more to do with the culture. And if you're a approach to life in general not just in tailoring if your approach to life is an approach that has design incorporated in it that means that you're a forward-thinking person and you believe that things can be improved now it has to be really incorporated in your life not just your profession because otherwise you know you're not going to do it so well, yeah, it's a world anytime you build something and it's your creation and you have been like bleeding and sweating and crying for it you also have to be wise enough, I think, and open enough to understand that you 
can also be part of the next stage of that improvement that you have made or other people to elevate that. But you need to have that vision. If you don't have that vision, and I, I don't think everybody can have that vision and not everybody will have that vision or wants to have that vision, but the more people adopt the forward thinking mentality of, well, we have a couple of things that you know we disagree and agree with, but we also have this element in our life called design and we can design things forward. You know, you know we, we're talking now on this you know website and we're seeing each other but I'm pretty sure that if we would sit around it for like half an hour, we could probably discuss how we could have done this conversation a lot better. So if we now become old and two youngsters are going to tell us how we're going to do podcasts, then the last thing we want to do is be like, oh, we know how to do podcasts, you know, uh, you know, this is how you do it. Whereas if you know things can be improved, then you have nothing to say but to accept that things will be improved. If it's not by you, it's going to be by others. So it better be by you, you know, accept that mentality and be part of it and don't be bitter about other people improving uh, something else. I think design is, is, is the key word in that sense. I think it's interesting. We're talking about tailoring, but at the end of the day, we're just talking about people. We're talking about worldviews, talking about being open. I don't know about you. I mean, I, well, actually, I do know that you've read quite a few books that I've also read as well. And I think there are certain concepts that kind of come up in those books, things like grit, design, you know, designing your life as a designer and, and as and as though you have control over it because you do. There's those sort of Those sort of things. And one thing that I wanted to bring up was something that I've heard around the tailor shop, which was, I actually heard it today, which was, I've always done it that way, which I thought was interesting because there was kind of this, not a fight, but, you know, a conversation about uh, how to do this jacket. It was an online jacket and one tailor says to the other one, oh, well, are you sure you're going to do it that way? And the other, well, yeah, I've always done it that way. And I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that phrase, because I know it kind of turned me, you know, it nudged me the wrong way. And I'm curious about what you think about that. Whoever is saying, I've always done it that way, is definitely not lying. That's the thing. They are telling you the truth. And it's a very general statement that you would say if you can't think of anything else at that moment to shut the other person up. You know, it's a very annoying when somebody kind of like jumps in front of you and says, hey, you know, what are you doing here? You should probably do it this way. Or why are you even doing it this way? Then you could just say, I've always done it this way. And hopefully they'll leave you alone. But I don't think it's a bad thing to say, uh, depending on what you do. If, if it's something that actually has been working out, then it has been working out. I think the problem in a situation like that is that <clears throat> because we don't have, let's say, in the majority of tailoring shops, designated time to sit around the table and assess everything that we do, any suggestion or any questioning of the techniques or the methods that we apply is just going to be annoying. But if you, let's say, discuss with your tailoring company or your team that this day at this time we're going to sit around and we're just going to have a critical look at our techniques, then probably you're going to hear that less because the direction of the focus is then aimed at looking at things critically and seeing if there can be things, you know, changed. But if it's just, you know, during the day, you know, you're just trying to get on with your work, then and somebody just interferes by asking a question, you just say, I've done it this way, now leave me alone. So it's probably when uh, that person says it is, is, is also important, you know. So you said we have time to sit around at a table, talk things over. I personally have thought in my own mind, how cool would that be to actually sit around with a group of tailors in a company and talk about what we're going to do before we do it? And I, and I by no means am saying to get rid of company structure or anything. I'm actually saying to put in more structure to say, hey, everybody, let's get together. We're going to have a meeting on yes. Monday because we need to talk about X, Y, and Z. 
What do you think the modern vision in general, in general, the modern vision of tailoring houses will be going forward in the next 10 or 20 years? Oh, 10 or 20 years. That's a long time. It's short, but long, if you know what I mean. One of the thoughts that I've had is that made to measure is definitely going to expand and is going to be able to put more of the bespoke elements into the cutting side and the you know, the making side. And I think their quality is going to improve because made to measure businesses are simply not run as the same as bespoke tailoring businesses. So if they kind of like manage to introduce more bespoke elements into their work and elevate their craft, I think that made to measure is going to be kind of like the leading business model for any forward looking bespoke tailoring company. That's just a guess. That's a wild guess. Uh, Because bespoke tailoring companies are They are very diverse, but they are also kind of like pretty much the same in the sense that they do what they do because they believe in tradition and that tradition is part of their brand. It's not part necessarily part of their lifestyle. They may drive the latest cars or have the latest technology in their pockets, but when it comes to their craft, they just want things to be the way they were because, well, you know how nostalgia works. You just want it because it's gone, you know, and when you are sewing something with like old linen thread, you think that you're being part of a magical old generation that is not there anymore but you are actually one of them so it's a very subconscious thing i think but it definitely is in there that's really interesting i I know when i was in milan this past weekend i stopped by xenia i have a friend who works for xenia and he works uh, in their bespoke atelier for the select customers that they have that that want bespoke you know in addition to their made to measure offering and it was very interesting because the impression that i got from them and what they told me was the complete opposite of what i have been trained to think by old tailors uh or by i don't want to call them old tailors by traditional tailors the the head cutter there went to this school. It's called Secoli. That's yeah. a pattern making school in Milan, a very good pattern making school. And they're based more on industrial pattern making. But having said that, you also are learning to make based on measurements. It's not it's not like you can only do one or the other. But I say industrial pattern making because it's extremely extremely precise. Mm-hmm. And you take this course to understand how to how to make the patterns and how to make the plans to build a garment in a in a factory. Is it a pattern, like, let's say, for a suit or just casual garments? No, you learn everything. And it was interesting because what they did was almost a blend of made-to-measure with bespoke, which I think is similar to what you're saying. And I think it's almost an enlightened idea of bespoke. Or maybe not enlightened, but you know, at least at least something that's different. And, you know, synthetic thread isn't a terrible thing because if you use mm. synthetic thread on your sleeves and everything, they're not going to rip. You know, they're going to they're gonna hold yes, their, exactly. their seams yeah, and everything. Yeah. It, it was just really refreshing to see what they were doing. They were taking this industrial method, but it was the precision from the industrial method that was key. And they adapted that into a bespoke offering. And I'm not, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying that they took an industrial method and made garments and said they were bespoke to their clients. They took an industrial method and used the idea of precision from mm-hmm. that industrial method to produce even better bespoke garments that were handmade for their clients. Which it's so simple, but. It's something that is looked down upon because a similar system or, or, you know, the same cutting system could be used to make an industrial garment. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the funny thing. Cutting, pattern cutting is basically a technique and uh, whether you do it or I do it or 10 other people do it, however we do it, we are still trying to do the same thing, more or less. We're trying to 
translate some measures into this pattern that's going to work and fit nicely. Now, we all kind of know in the back of our minds when something isn't fitting right, but not every person is willing to admit that, you know, oh, this is a mistake that I have because I just don't know how to deal with that part. So what happens is they are going to say, oh, no, this is intentional. This is side body drape or this is like neck drape, you know. I, so they're going to create terms and styles around those mistakes that they don't know how to fix. Whereas, you know, it's very simple. If you want to build a chip, then there are standards today how a chip is made. You're not going to go back to 1973 and build like a big box and say, this is how I want to do it. Well, it's, it's just not going to work. So a technique is usually also improved, funny enough, when it is given to people who are in the industrial field. So if there is any group of people that is really qualified to teach us pattern cutting is the people who are cutting patterns for factories. They know they are very good pattern cutters. Individual pattern cutters, they, they have to learn something and interpret it in their way with all the restrictions they have, with all the misinformation that they may get from someone else, you know, inherit from someone else. And then they have to make something out of it because, well, they, you know, it's their passion, but at the same time, it's also their business. So it's very tricky to really develop a technique if you're a one-man band because you don't have investment behind you. You don't have, you know, a, a feedback system. And therefore, you what your craft is just your craft. It's as if almost the, the craft of, a, the, of the individual tailor is, you know, just separate from the industrial craft, whereas it's the same thing. It's garment manufacturing. Whether you do that with your hands or you do that with 7 million machines that do everything for you, you're still manufacturing a garment. So knowing how that garment goes together is a very important part of that process. It's not about necessarily the techniques you use. It's about knowing how that garment goes together. Now, once you know that, you can say, okay, I'm going to sew with my foot or with my mouth or with my hands, you know, then that's, that's a different story then. Like I was saying earlier with precision, when you're cutting one suit, for one person that's made by one person or maybe five people or three people, you have total control over the whole process. So that that cutter can cut that suit. He can be wrong about certain things. And since they control since you control the entire process, you have room to make errors, to adjust. You you can make up for some cutting imperfections in the make of the garment because your make isn't necessarily always the same. While with industrial pattern making, you have to be precise in it and the cutting yes. has to be perfect because if not, you're going to have so many problems later down the road. Exactly, when you, yeah. And you try to make the garment, you know, the whole factory is going to fall apart. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think, you know, this this whole division between ready-to-wear and, you know, bespoke tailoring is um, is probably set up by bespoke tailors. You know, it's kind of like, I don't want to use the word conspiracy because it's you know it's a ridiculous word but it's kind of like as if as if all tailors subconsciously knew that what they should be doing is slacking off that one side of the industry that is making all the progress so that they seem to be very special whereas actually uh, they're just the same you know so we've gone really far into the side of innovation of how we can make things better what are some of the characteristics of traditional tailoring that you like, that you think they need to remain the same, that are good for someone who's learning, or that are good to maintain the spirit of a bespoke garment? Well, I think you have to look at it this way. So manufacturing clothing, whether done by hand or by uh, you know factories, is still kind of like manufacturing, right? 
But if you want to really ask the question of in what ways are the traditional methods or the traditional approach to tailoring beneficial to to either an industry or an individual, I would say that's when you start to look at it from an artistic point of view. And, you know, when you look at it through that lens, it's not only about the clothing anymore either, you know, it's also about you as the person. So for example, well, you've probably seen those videos where someone is making a painting within like five minutes. It's like a cheap looking landscape. That's kitsch, you know, they produce like 50 hundreds of them in a day, but that person is just you know, turned into a machine. And so there's very little reflection. They just learn the technique and they repeat it, you know, with the brush and that's it. But the one person that makes one painting a year, let's say, like the old masters of, you know, the Renaissance period, which uh, have kind of like impressed all of us, I think, for them to make a painting, it was about not just knowing the techniques, but also knowing how to develop the techniques and all the things that you had to do just to get a painting. I mean, back in the days, if you wanted to know how the Egyptian goddess of whatever was dressed, you couldn't just type in in Google to see examples. You had to like, you had to use your imagination. You had to maybe travel to Egypt. You know, you had to stretch your mind and just be imaginative. And so all the research they do on the body postures, all the things you need to know about the body itself, about fabric, about light, you have to set yourself up for... Um, a very weird journey and i think the traditional sense of bespoke tailoring allows you to use that craft in order to develop yourself as a person in multiple dimensions so if you want like i said like if you want to really become a tailor like full sense tailor in my opinion you're not just looking at fabric and be like oh this is nice for travel and this is nice for the winter well everybody can do that you know but what you really need to be able to do is to understand the person you're making something for and also understand yourself while you're making things but you also need to know how does this relate to this to, and how does this relate to this and so make all these weird connections that have nothing to do with tailoring like maybe color in itself has nothing to do with tailoring but you, you know it's used in tailoring or or any other shapes that you want to you know uh, think about but you look at someone and you're like well this person has an edge you know when they when the way they speak the way they walk there is something to them that it's got something that i could translate into this style or this shape and that's difficult it's a lot more difficult than you think because sometimes just the shape of someone's nose is all that is there that defines their character and if you would remove like change the shape of that nose of that eyebrow it's going to look from hero to like a loser you know and so making something you know around those terms i think that's where the traditional sense of okay let's keep things you know re you know repeat things as many times as you have to until you first of all discipline yourself and you also calm yourself down and actually work along a framework that has taken a lot of time to build up by others. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website, at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. That's interesting because that framework doesn't allow necessarily for a factory mindset. If you want to be creative and have that much creative impact over every garment that you're producing, that doesn't seem to me like a very scalable thing. Where in the past and even now currently, there's tailoring houses that have you know 30 or 40 tailors in them. I mean, how do you think that affects the growth or the size or the business structure of that tailoring house? 
I think that is actually bringing us kind of like to the dilemma that we have with within bespoke tailoring is that if you take the artistic approach, you're going to very quickly end up with the individual approach. And the individual approach doesn't really care much about growth as in, you know, a big team or a big company. It's all about what do I want to achieve and how can I achieve that the best way possible and just actually get as many people out of my way so I can do my work under, you know, without being disturbed. But I think there is, there is something there that, that we can harvest. And that is, I think probably one of the core elements of that is the individual's curiosity and personal interpretation of things. This is just an example. When you're working, let's say, in a factory, there are strict guidelines on, first of all, you know, you have the cost and the economics of everything and also the time frame and also the efficiency of the actual process. And that has a certain outcome which, you know, works for the mass market. Now, a lot of creativity gets crushed in that process because the guidelines are just too strict and you can't really deviate from them. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It's good. It's just different. But when you look at the individual approach and the smaller scale approach, I think you can still learn and take some of that, let's say, industrial approach in the way things are done according to a specific guideline that gets updated or actually has to get updated. Otherwise, it can't really grow and apply that to a smaller team. So you don't need to have like a factory of 700 people, for example. You can have, you can have a team of 10 people or 20 people. But what you can do is you can use that as an excuse, that industrial method to bring all the creativity that you have in a small team and constantly update not only your product, but you can also constantly update your business model and see how much creativity you can condense within one structure that you set up and update every once in a while, which you normally wouldn't be able to do in a factory setting. So I think a, a short answer would be you need to have both of them. You can't you can't have just be the pure artist, you know, Vincent van Gogh. You live in hunger and then once you die, you become you're like world famous. You know, what good is that? Because, uh, you know, you don't, you want to enjoy what you're doing while you're living. So I think uh, you need to have both an industrial mindset and an artistic mindset and never, never, never leave design out of the picture because it's design that's going to allow these two to marry up, really. Well, you said some really interesting stuff. I want to kind of go back and then and then go forward as well because you mentioned one thing about painting. You mentioned you gave an example about painting, which brought to my mind someone who I really admire, who is Seth Godin. I'm a big fan of, of, of his books and, and his whole ideology, or I don't even know if I would call it an ideology, but his, his worldview. And one of the examples that he gives very often in his talks is the example of this factory of artists. And what they do is all year, they repaint the Mona Lisa. There's, so there's a guy, he's got a paintbrush, and everything that he does for you know a month or for the entire year is to paint the Mona Lisa. And he paints it by hand, but that is not the art. The art is when the Mona Lisa was created. And I think that's similar to what you were saying. It's marrying innovation with your creativity and making something original. And yes, everything original has some basis in things that have already been done. But it's the marriage of all those things that makes it original. And I don't know if you have anything else to say on that or not. But. No, I think it's correct. I mean, I would never dare to compare myself with someone like Seth Godin because, you know, I'm nowhere near the guy, uh, which who I hugely admire. But if that's how you interpret it, then I can accept that. No, that's that's very true. You know, you need both of both worlds. And I think this is a problem everybody in every industry, in every situation has, is that things have to be either one thing or the other. And so 
a funny thing that happens with me is that sometimes people find that when it comes to a creative session, let's say a brainstorm session, some of the people I work with find it very difficult to communicate with me because I am one thing and the opposite of that same thing at the same time during a session like that, you know? So it's as if I'm like shouting with one side of my face, ready to wear is the best. And then the other side is saying, no, ready to wear is the worst thing. And then they're like, whoa, how are we going to communicate with you? You're like both of them. You have to be either good or bad. You know, you have to either be black or white. You have to either be industrial or, you know, in, in individual. But I think you have to keep both because if you hold them long enough in your mind, one spark is going to be in between them. And that is going to be the new thing, you know? Well, and at the same time, though, I am a big proponent of bespoke, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't be uh, in Italy learning to be a tailor. And I imagine that you are as well, based on your whole story. But at the same time, when you think about what are we trying to achieve, what are we trying to achieve? What are the needs? Who are the people that we're trying to target? So in my mind, bespoke is the best. There's no parallel for bespoke. But if our client is not someone who wants a bespoke garment, Bespoke is not the best. It's the worst. It's it the, worst. the worst. So you have to be you have to be aware of the of the needs and of your market and who you're trying to sell, what you're trying to sell to that person. You have to be aware of both of both of those things in order exactly. to have success. Yeah. Um, and so I think I completely understand what you're saying. Where it's like where people might get frustrated with you because you're saying, "Oh well, no, ready to wear is awesome. I love ready to wear." And then on the other hand, you know, five minutes later, you might be saying, "Oh well, no, bespoke's the best," mm-hmm. or or made to, or made to measure is a great thing. Exactly. And then five minutes later, oh well, made to measure is a bad thing. Well, it depends on a lot of things. You know, yes. what are you really trying to achieve? And then also that goes into kind of what is the client wanting? I think some clients come to tailors or they go to made to measure, you know, they get ready to wear, whatever they get. And they aren't necessarily always met with the best sales advice. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're met a lot of the time with just salesmen. And so they're not really listened to. And, you know, all respect to salesmen, they're doing their job and everything, but they're not necessarily the most educated people all the time in terms of the industry. Yes, and yes. I, and they're not necessarily always prepared to help that client because what that client may need, they may come in and they want something extremely custom, something that made-to-measure is never going to be able to fulfill. But yet they continue with fulfilling a, a made-to-measure order. But that's not what they really want. And that's because their their needs aren't really being listened to. Exactly. And in turn, they're not get, receiving a product in, in turn that, that is adequate to suit their needs. Just what are your thoughts on having awareness and understanding what a client needs and having the honesty to tell them what they need? Well, sometimes it's very simple. Somebody walks in and they say, hey, I want a suit. Can I have it by tomorrow? No is going to be the answer because it simply isn't possible with what we do. We don't have, you know, ready to wear suits or whatever. But at the same time, what I'm going to say is, is, is I'm not deviating from your question, but I think it's related. So when we get a scenario where you suddenly have a lot of people setting up the same kind of like business because they see money is to be made there, you know, let's just sell some suits, charge some prices and, you know, people want suits and, and uh, you know, we can make a lot of money. Once you get those kind of like companies within the industry, one of the things you notice is that the real tailors are going to be uh, complaining about it and saying, you know, those are not the real tailors and this is that and they shouldn't be in the industry. But The reason why those tailors are there or those companies exist is that the real so-called tailors are are not really doing anything to change any of that, you see. And so I think tailors in general, the real tailoring companies or the ones who think they are the real ones, I think they should be putting out more content 
now they can for their customers and not in the sense of do you need a suit call us you know not not in that sense but to really talk about their craft why do we know so much about music why do we know so much about movies you know because that industry talks continuously about their actors about their musicians about the different compositions we don't talk about our craft that much unless some blogger or some other person who is like a, either has a podcast or has a you know magazine you know a page in the magazine or has a website comes along and does an interview and then everybody you know wants to be in in the front page and everybody wants to do like uh, uh, you know features and reviews but the tailors themselves are not really doing well in terms of making content and talking about their craft if they are making content it's just sales you know we have the best accessories visit us at number 17 and then see what we can sell you you know but it doesn't help your company really other than showing that you are uh, trying to sell something well, the difficulty I think a lot of the older generation of tailors runs into is that the needs of the client have changed. And like it or not, those needs have changed. Yes, yes. They so have. offering the same product is not going to work. And being angry with the situation that your product that one time did work mm-hmm. is not working is not going to help the situation at all. So like it or not, you know, that client is evolving, has evolved. And will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge for tailors today and for all businesses today is to figure out what those needs are and how your business can fill those needs. You know, I'm a bespoke tailor. Okay, how can I do work yes. that is valued by those clients? And then to understand that, okay, if, if my work is valued by those clients and there's only 20 of them, okay, well, there's kind of a ceiling to my business. There's a ceiling to how far I can go. Exactly. Okay, well, then I can be more creative. Instead of growing the business, I'm going to really deepen those relationships with those clients and find more offerings that I can give to those clients that's that's helpful to those 20 people where they say, wow, I'm so glad that you're in my life. You know, I didn't think that I was going to have this type of relationship with my tailor that I did. And it turns out that you're just being, you're just so helpful. You have so many offerings, so many options that are helpful. I think being helpful is, is something that's kind of lost. And I think yes, understanding yeah. that like it or not, the market is what it is. Exactly, exactly. And that's very unfortunate, you know. And, and one of the mistakes I think tailoring companies also make is that although suits are, you know, generally something that most men would wear, you shouldn't be trying to sell suits to every man out there or woman out there, you know. The suits that I make are just not made for everyone. And uh, so are the suits of all the other companies, you know. They're just, it's a very different clientele, although the product is more or less the same. Things get very tricky when people start to sell to everyone. And, you know, you have a couple of companies that really push on that. That's when the industry starts to kind of lose its balance, I would say. And the customers are going to be generally more confused as well about what a real bespoke product is going to be. Because, you know, one person says it's this and the other person says it's that. And then, you know, you have to now do your own research. And here's the thing. This is, this is something I was thinking of. You know, when it comes down to reviews and reviews within bespoke tailoring, it's such a tricky thing. You know, reviews have been one of the main reasons why some businesses go kind of like just extinct and uh, some companies continue to flourish. But it's very difficult to have reviews within bespoke tailoring because the prices are too high, man. You know, like how many people are going to review your product? You know, Uh, not every customer is going to go on Google and say, you know, hey, I bought this suit. But so the most reviews you're going to get are going to be from 
a couple of maybe bloggers if they do a feature about you or maybe one or two uh, of your clients unless they do that in their own you know private kind of like peer group you know it's kind of like a word of mouth thing but other than that uh, it's very difficult to really get a true image of how a bespoke tailoring company is because you know it's so individual that you may think it's the best company ever and then the next person goes there and it's like they're terrible like it's a disaster and so you you never really know what these companies are up to, whether they are actually delivering something or they're just keeping the important customers happy. And part of that, I think, is those companies having their individual tribes, their individual yes, client yes. base. Like, for example, uh, Rubenacci. They have a certain style and people who like Rubenacci love Rubenacci. And then you can go talk with someone else. Many English sailors, I would imagine, don't like Rubenacci, but I don't know. Maybe they do. He does have English roots. But you go to some English tailors or you go to some clients of English tailors or even other Italian tailors and they say, oh, Rubenacci is horrible. I know yeah, I have yeah. Italian tailor friends and they talk about how the style is very old. So I think part of that is a company like Rubenacci talking to their fans and really enriching that fan base and that group. And I think it, what you're saying is true, which is that it's difficult for people to understand that from the outside. And so what you have here is like this company with this really rich, big fan base who love the company, and then you have people who don't like it. And it's kind of hard to get objective advice, especially if you're someone who's maybe not at the extremes. You're just a normal guy who's like, I'm looking for a bespoke suit. Well, maybe not a normal guy because... You know, people who like bespoke suits usually aren't very normal. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's just someone who's not at, at the extreme of I hate Rubenacci or I like Rubenacci. Mm. But there's someone who's looking for a good suit. I think to find that objective advice is difficult, like you're saying. Yeah, and and also that's I think one of the main reasons why companies don't really find it necessary to fix that what isn't broken because the people around them are the ones they who you know who love them and so you're not gonna it's very unlikely from a happy customer to say you know what the hell was this you know go ahead and fix this. Well, exactly, but then you we get back to the cycle of saying okay, this is my customer. We have let's say we have 20 customers like i was saying before and they they love our product how can we make something new mm. and interesting that our 20 customers go crazy for that they just love there is another element to that as well which is this is something people just don't want to hear and that is that and i really believe i deeply believe in this you have to one find a customer that is willing to be fussy and two you have to encourage that customer to be even more fussy this means that you have to tell them what is right and what is wrong in the sense that is not going to work in your benefit but actually should happen for you to improve now one of the things like for example somebody orders let's say a check suit right and you look at this check suit and it's like the horizontal check goes you know from the front panel and then suddenly it goes like downwards on the sleeve and then it goes into the it's, it's just not one continuous line. And then the tailor is going to be like, oh, yeah, it has to be like this, you know? What you should be doing is like, hey, man, I messed this up. This should have actually been on a horizontal line. Do you know what? I'm going to take this jacket from you. I'm going to make a new one for you on my cost, and you're going to have it when it's ready. If you like that idea, you can stay our customer. If you don't like it, then we have messed up. And that's what I mean with the content that tailors should be making is that you should be telling your customers or your you know competitors' customers how things should be. So don't make up excuses like about drape if you don't know how to fit the garment around the body, but show people how things are when they are right. 
so that when you mess up, people can tell. It's very long-term thinking, of course. It's not good for short-term business because you may go extinct within a month. But if you manage to kind of like keep it up, then maybe after 20 years, you are the best tailor and are on the edge of the innovation kind of like a generation. Well, like you were saying earlier with the reviews, how it's difficult to find reviews of tailors, what you're saying holds true for information about tailors, which is yeah. part of the reason why I'm working on this project of artifacts, which is to democratize information in the tailoring industry so that a client can go on the internet, they can research a little bit about tailoring, and they know what's what. And when they talk to their tailor, they can talk intelligently to their tailor. And hopefully that tailor responds <laughs> in a good way and they don't, and they yeah, don't say yeah. things that are that are false. Or hopefully that tailor has the humility to say, this is how I do things. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I could make it how you're asking me. Like your example with the check, yes. if you have a check that's all squiggly and that doesn't line up, I think the challenge for the tailor is to have the humility to say, hmm, with my method, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, let me do some research and I will see if I can do that for you. I think that's really a, a big challenge. Is yeah, to have that, that, that is that is certainly a challenge, man. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things I like about what you're doing with artifacts as well is, I mean, this is probably going to be inevitable. At some point, you're going to have tailors who are going to try to, you know, sneak in some self-promotion. But I think eventually it will allow the customer to see things from their own perspective and make their own judgments instead of you doing the interview and then later on writing about the interview and then giving your opinion about it because then you're just you know directing the customer towards the direction but now the customer can actually listen or see or read and then see like okay well this I, I don't like this at all I you know who's this guy and then oh this guy I really like or this girl and go from there I think that's extremely important and uh, what you're doing is extremely valuable for this industry and I hope that many tailors appreciate this because uh, I don't think tailors would benefit a lot from a well okay it's a bit strange what I'm going to say this is now when I'm going to be yes and no at the same time. So tailors do benefit from bloggers because, you know, they bring awareness about the industry in general. They create interest with their floral writings and, you know, their weird things that they say about tailors. But at the same time, so, I think Reza, tailors don't really that I benefit you from them because the bloggers can only write in, so much about you. And when it comes down frame. to like the real technical side, they can give a lot of misleading information. You know, you don't, you don't want the blogger to be telling the people whether you're technically right or not, unless they are competent tailors themselves. But otherwise, you just get like an opinion of someone. And if that someone becomes very important, then, you know, they can just with one line destroy you technically. And then, and then, and then you're like, okay, you know, flatbread. That is a, a big point of it, which is that I'm not trying to push myself into the spotlight. I'm trying to push those in the industry into the spotlight and to help diffuse information for people in the industry. Yes. Well, the thing is that you're also technical yourself. Big exactly, point. exactly. Big point. Exactly, which again, I would never say that I'm, you know, technically the number one in the world. I'd never say that. But the point is that I'm that I'm there and I'm learning and, and I'm willing to learn alongside other people. Exactly. Oh, again, 15 years, long time, man. It's a very difficult question. I mean, I can barely predict what I'm going to be seeing myself in two years. But, well, uh, I could try because, you know, eventually there is a vision and how exactly that vision is going to be uh, unfolding, I don't know. But I will try to make it as general as possible so that I'm not too specific. So just going a couple of steps back to what we discussed earlier with the generation cycle. As we know, every once in a while, one generation comes along and does something 
something that the generations after them are going to use as serious material for inspiration. Just like we have, you know, 400 years ago, what painters did is very different than what painters do today. And we still, you know, they're still looking at the old masters. But what I'm hoping and what I'm working towards is, first of all, to be part of that generation that does something truly extraordinary in the industry that I'm active in. And that it's not only going to be used by the next generation as inspiration, but it actually is going to allow the next generation to outperform what we achieved in our generation. And so I don't want to be too specific, but to make that a bit more specific, one of the first things that needs to be in place in order to do that is to really try to bring all the chaos that we have in our industry into a stable, solid place where we can get our head around and say, it's not going to work if everybody is just going to do whatever they want to do and say, this is my way. But let's allow everybody to do their own way. But let's just agree on a couple of fundamentals. Please, let's do that. Because those fundamentals are going to be, that's what we you know rest against. And it's going to be our supporting pillars. If they need maintenance, we will maintain them. If they need improvement, we will improve them. But let's just first agree on them. And it's going to be just like a handful of things, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, let's all do peak lapels and say that's a fundamental thing. That's nonsense, you know. Let's keep style and technique very separate, but let's just, when it comes down to technique, get some of the fundamentals there and also make all the basics available. Every single thing that you would normally pay for to go to a tailoring academy, let's say how to... What, how to use the basic stitches, how to draft the basic pattern, how to use the thimble, how to sew a pair of trousers, how to make a pair of jackets. Make all of that available so that if you're sitting home somewhere in a dungeon in some point of the planet, you can still become a technically sound tailor because now the industry has agreed on a couple of things. And this includes learning from the actual technicians from the ready-to-wear, those devils that are, uh, <laughs> that are uh, active you know, and doing things beyond our uh, abilities. Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.